Hi, I'm Kosha. And I'm Shaylushi. And we're sisters and the co-hosts of the podcast, I Am Speaking with Shaylushi and Kosha. This podcast focuses on sharing and amplifying the voices of people who have felt othered. We've had the chance to hear so many amazing stories. And during season two, one of our running jokes together was that once VP Kamala Harris heard about this podcast, she was definitely going to call us to be a guest, but that we would have to turn her down because her story didn't fit with our theme for that season. But that joke was really the seed for this series. I am speaking with expert voices, an arm of our original and still ongoing podcast. We're excited to share with you the stories and expertise of people who are at the forefront of their fields. And Madam Vice President, with the launch of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices, we are now ready for you to join us at any time. I think that was good, right? Hello, hello. I am speaking with Shailshi and Kosha, and I am speaking with Expert Voices listeners. Today, Shailshi is not able to join us for the intro, but don't worry, you will hear her voice during the episode. We have an incredibly special guest, Darshan Mehta, Dr. Darshan Mehta, MD, MPH, which is a Master's of Public Health. Let me just take a moment and read to you his many titles. Dr. Mehta is Medical Director and Director of Medical Education for the Benson Henry Institute for Mind-Body Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital and Director of Education at the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine, Harvard Medical School, and Brigham and Women's Hospital. This man is brilliant. He is brilliant. He and Sheila go way, way back. Actually, before college, they met in high school at Illinois Math and Science Academy. You've heard Sheila she talk a little bit about her boarding school, high school. They went, ended up going to the same college, Illinois Wesleyan. Darshan then went on to study medicine, but he also did some mind-body work. He went on retreats. He spent a year in India. He has really worked on meditation and medication combined. And the insights that this man has on humanity is truly inspiring. But at the end of the day, he is an educator. He is a researcher. He is a doctor. He is also a friend, a son a brother, a father, and he's really focusing on being an overall human being. Please enjoy this episode of I Am Speaking with Expert Voices, Dr. Darshan Mehta. Uh, my name is Darshan Mehta. Uh, my pronouns are he, him, and his, and I am speaking. Hi, Darshan. Hi there. Dr. Mehta. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you prefer us to call you Dr. Mehta? 
You know, no, not at all. <laughs> I, I mean, no, I, I, wait, did I answer that right? Yeah. I, wa- I do not want you to call me Dr. <laughs> it's actually one of these things now in medical school. I have to be, I'll just, I'm going to digress already. You know, I, I'm the faculty advisor for the South Asian medical students at, at Harvard Medical School. Oh, and I think and I know what you're going to say. Couple, a couple of years ago, they, they, I, I have them come over. This is pre-pandemic. I always have them come over to, you know, have, and I make this big meal and everything and they come over. So one of them comes up to me and he's like, so should we be calling you Darshan uncle or Dr. <laughs> Mita? I was like, oh my God. Did you say neither? I, thought I, had neither. To, I had to pause for a moment. I was like, wait, I guess that's true. I guess I'm of that age now. I was like, oh crap. It is, it is crazy. <laughs> No, not uncle. Let me just say you're not to your students. You can't be there's an uncle. Right. Right. But I, but I, but, but it's interesting. Um, but they were in my home. Right. So they came to my home Over, at school. I'm still Dr. Meta to them. But at home, I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I am an uncle. Not- maybe they just maybe they just put G at the end of it. There's some G. Oh, there's some G. But I said so. That, so then my answer, my answer is because I've obviously I'm in Boston as at that time, Tom Brady. Uh, it was still our quarterback at, for the New England Patriots. And so, and he's only three months younger to me. I was like, as long as Tom Brady is playing in the NFL, you cannot call me Darshan Uncle. Oh, oh, oh right. He's really still playing. So, yeah. Really good answer. Yes. All right, Darshan. So for our listeners, if you do not know, Darshan and I went to high school and college together. We have known each other for 30 plus years. Right. So our, our friendship goes way, way back. Um, but we're not here to talk about that. We are here to talk about what Darshan is doing currently, which is, for me, it's quite impressive. And I also cannot imagine how you find the time in your life to do all those things. So let's start with, give us a little bit of your background. Tell us what you're doing now. What am I doing now? That's the... <laughs> I think even my parents wonder what I'm still doing. I do get a paycheck, so that's a good thing. That's all but I what care I about. Do... You know that. <laughs> so um, all right, so there yeah, she gets paid. That's fantastic. Okay, next. <laughs> <That's> a... <laughs> uh, yeah, so I am a, um, I'm a physician, uh, an internal medicine physician. So I trained uh, in Chicago at University of Illinois Hospital. And I actually thought at the time I was going to, you know, internal medicine, primary care, private practice done. Uh, I was newly married at the time and sort of like it was a planned planned route there. And then somewhere in the middle of residency, I got into this interest originally, you know, sort of honed in on uh, nutrition, then thinking about complementary and integrative therapies, different influences for all of this for me in my life. We'll talk about some of them maybe. Uh, but the first influence will have to be my younger brother. He always says that he has the idea, and then I sort of went with it. My, my younger brother, Fadis, he would, uh, he always is like, yeah, you always end up somehow stealing my ideas. So he was what, interested in this whole, at that time it was called um, holistic medicine, and he was in, he had a holistic medicine interest group when he was in at Urbana-Champaign for college, and he was like, oh, this all this cool stuff, and so anyways, I, I got into it and then I ended up applying for research fellowship that looked at the study of complementary integrative therapies. And, and at the time, uh, my ex-wife had also, she had figured out her graduate work and we ended up landing ultimately in Boston 
and I took a role as a research fellow uh, looking at this in uh, at Harvard Medical School. But my original, I realized in that journey that I'm not going to be a researcher. Uh, I like it. It was nice to kind of go through it, but I wasn't going to spend a life writing grants. And I, and I ended up really enjoying education. My original projects were in herbal and dietary supplements. I said, oh, this is like way too, I don't, that means I have to work with industry and I got to do all that. And I was like, I have no interest or bandwidth to do that. And so I, and I was really interested in medical education. And at that time I took a couple of retreats. Uh, one was this uh, retreat with John Kabat-Zinn, uh, which was awesome. It was a seven day retreat. And if you've ever, like he's a very charismatic uh, individual and you're sort of like in this meditation retreat when he's like, so that was one force. And then the second thing was when you're a research fellow on a, a research, like on a postdoctoral fellowship, you, I was making less as a fellow than I did as a resident. And as a result, I, uh, uh, Swati was on a, a graduate stipend and I was on this stipend. So do moonlighting. And I had had a, this lucky break, just serendipitous to meet uh, Dr. Herbert Benson, who is one of the other luminaries in the field of mind-body medicine and uh, ended up starting to do moonlighting work for him. And that sort of kicked it off. And then by the time I finished my fellowship, I applied for jobs around the country and ended up staying in, ended up staying in Boston. And so I landed my job. So I ended up not doing primary care and uh, ended up now here. And, and, and then my roles have evolved since then, but, but ended up starting this weird, weird job doing cons consultations in mind-body medicine. So to walk us through yeah. the number of jobs, titles, roles that you hold, because there's at least four, but I'm sure there are more. So currently I have five, I have five, five jobs uh, here. What, what most people know me in, in my um, current sphere is as uh, I'm the medical director of the Benson Henry Institute for Mind-Body Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. But in addition to that, I'm, I'm also the education director for the Osher Center for Integrative Health at Harvard Medical School and Brigham and Women's Hospital. So that's my second role. My third role is I, the director for the Office for Wellbeing in the Center for Faculty Development at Mass General. My fourth hat is I am the site director for all uh, first year medical students that rotate at Mass General in their practice of medicine course, which is their longitudinal course where they learn how to interview a patient, learn how to do a physical exam, learn beginnings of clinical reasoning, like those, that whole skill set, professionalism. And then my last hat is for the home based program. I'm the integrative and internal medicine consultant for the program that focuses on post traumatic stress disorder in military veterans. And they come from around the country. So those are my, that's what I do. That's a lot. So you know you could only wear one hat at a time, usually. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's a lot of hats. That's a lot of fun. Lot For fun. your mom's mm -hmm. sake, is that five hats, five paychecks? Or is it? No, no, no. No, it's still one paycheck. It comes as one paycheck. Yeah. Which is good. <laughs> Otherwise, that would be a mess. I would, I would never. But, it, but yeah, but pre-pandemic, now I'm, you're seeing, well, I'm sitting here. Everything's in one side. But pre-pandemic, every day of the week, I had to go to a different spot. Because you weren't, we couldn't work remote, right? So that's all changed. Like I'm uh, now, I'm like shape shifting in the day. Like today, I saw patients, and then I had a meeting for this hat, and then I had another meeting for the other hat. That would have never happened in pre-pandemic. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, fun. just 
would be impossible to drive. Like you just drive around everywhere all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And Boston is, yeah, Boston is the worst for driving. Definitely not conducive for well-being. Which is, <laughs> which is really ironic. When we think about New England towns, we're basically talking about places that started as gums. Exactly. So for, yeah. our, for our listeners, in India, it means like village or town. Gam now means sort of like the old city. Right. But, you know, where it's sort of there, where the plan, paths and roads and everything were not planned. They just, wherever the paths were, that's where it was. So there's off, they're often curved and narrow and things are all over the place and hard to navigate. Sounds like the, well, in some ways, the pandemic has allowed you to be more flexible with your time. Absolutely. But I'm here. There's no separation of home and work anymore, right? Like you're, well, well the, listener, the listeners won't see this, but you're literally seeing where I work, eat, play, watch TV, listen to music. <laughs> it's like right here, this four by four little block of space. I feel like the pandemic has allowed for people to be more demanding of our time and our mental space, right? Oh, yeah. There's no question. Yeah. I have no boundaries. I, I have zero <laughs> boundaries with my time. I'll just right. tell you right now. You're not commuting, so you don't have to start at nine. We can start at eight. You can go up until five. No, tomorrow morning I have a 7 a.m. meeting and my day will end at like six. And that's like normal now. That's like become normalized, right? So... So this is an interesting sort of entree when we talk about, you know, complementing integrative therapy and right. sort of how the mind and the body are connected. Because um, we're talking about the pandemic and we are in year three. And if there's one thing that has affected everyone's mental health and their yeah. approach to health in general, it's yeah. the pandemic, right? We just talk about how we're sitting in our homes most of the time, our work days are longer, we're socializing less. And certainly we know from numerous stories that COVID has really affected our ability to seek even routine healthcare. Um, yeah. what, are, what are you seeing in the various places that you are engaged with as what are you seeing with your patients? What are you seeing with med school students, right? And how are you yeah. helping them? How are you coaching them up to be like, this is going to be a part of our life for a while? Oh, oof. I don't know if I've been able to coach them that way yet, because um, I'm still learning I mean, I never knew how to teach virtually, much less see patients virtually. Like, these are all like we're learning on the job skills. I think one of the things that I've come to appreciate is that while this is nice, uh, in some ways, like we have more convenience, flexibility at home. You know, I have a six and a half year old in the middle of the day, I can play, you know, if, I, if she was home, I could play with her or help her with her work and then go back to my work. And like those, there's certain freedoms we have. The thing we miss is the collegiality. It's very different when it's virtual. And I think that's actually contributing to a lot of sense of uh, loneliness, at least to healthcare workers feel, uh, unless you work in the hospital. So I, you know, I also, I didn't even mention, you know, I also periodically will attend, uh, you know, or see, you know, be on the inpatient side, you know, overseeing residents and students uh, on the inpatient medicine wards, uh, just so that I keep that pulse of like what's going on inpatient, because otherwise it's very easy to be here in this bubble that I'm in and I have no clue what's going on in the hospital side in, in that sense. So I, um, I think we're learning how important it is for human beings to stay connected. Uh, and I think it's a, 
we've known that uh, in some ways, like I think physicians have felt, you know, pre-pandemic, there was all, you know, my interest in well-being came from just this, it wasn't my plan, like anything I'm doing today, I can tell you that when I went to medical school or went, even went to residency, I, you can, I could not have predicted this future at all, that this is the work I'm gonna be doing today. There's no way, no way in hell that I would have figured this out. Like, this is what I'm gonna do. It's, it, which is funny because we always ask the questions in interviews, oh, what do you imagine doing five years from now or 10 years from now? So I, um, so, it's, it's, so this idea of well-being is a huge one because pre-pandemic, we already started knowing that healthcare workers are dealing and particularly physicians, they're the most researched subjects of all this, have a huge, huge high rates of depression, high rates of burnout, um, highest rates of you know, death by suicide, as an example like that is, like people don't realize how bad it was pre-pandemic and now how bad mm -hmm. it is even more so you know, during the pandemic. So uh, just as a statistic that some people are aware of, you know, one physician dies by suicide every day in the United States. That's how it is. So that rate is either equivalent to or greater than, depending on which data set you look at, the rate of death by suicide by veterans with PTSD in the military. Wow. I knew it was high. I didn't realize it was that high. Yeah, yeah. So, so and um, and we faced it at even at our hospital. You know, MGH is uh, you know comically called you know man's greatest hospital. That's how people refer to it. But we we faced it. It's actually it's it's a very public story that's even in all the journals and newspapers about even one of our physicians. So you know, if that's the tip of the iceberg, then you can see that there are many people who are suffering. And I think one of the things I've come to appreciate, again, this is where I think where my personal um, uh, own personal journey and personal has sort of mixed into my professional, like we've been taught to keep our personal and professional life separate, like you have to keep these boundaries, but actually in my line of work, there is no boundary. The personal is the professional and, and professional is the personal now. And um, you know, having faced my own set of losses and sadness and stuff in my own life, like, wow, if you really are doing, don't enjoy your work and you're facing uh, the challenges in your home, that's a deadly combo. It is. I mean, you and I have, naturally, you and I have talked about some of the challenges you have faced, not that you need to recount them here, but you did also tell me that you talk about them openly in your work, in your training, in your education, yeah. how does that, you know, how does that a sort of how do you integrate the professional with the personal, and secondly, how is that received? I think people, it's a human experience, right? So whether it's loss of, you know, I mean, it, loss is loss at the end of the day. I think that's the thing. That's a human, uh, even loss of life, loss of relationship, loss of. Um, a uh, sense of like standing or pride, you know, you might have, you know, like those are, they're like, we all, like, I think that those are fundamental human experiences that we all go through, but in different ways, they may come in different forms. You know, everyone will experience loss at some level. I mean, loss of a loved one, right? I mean, so I think it's not to say that we have to necessarily divulge everything with our patients, but we can tap into that experience to connect with our patients. Uh, at least that's what I've come to do. And not just patients, my colleagues. I mean, I think it's my experience, while it's my experience and it's uniquely my experience, they will have their experience. But the idea of that there's a shared humanity 
there. Uh, I may not fully get what that person, nor will they get what I've gone through in my life, but, but there's a, still a sense of shared humanity. And that I think has been, uh, I never realized how powerful that would be, uh, to be honest with you. Uh, it's allowed me to connect with people that I never would have expected to connect with. Did you have an example of that that ha has molded you? Did you come to that realization at a certain part of your career or did it happen kind of organically? How did you come to that realization? That's a good question. I don't know how, it, I think it's a little bit of both. At some point, in order for me to understand my own nature of my own suffering, I had to be able to articulate it, right? It's not until you articulate it. And then I was taking a risk. I remember the first time, you know, I in my journey, like one of the losses that was, uh, you know, that's a, still, it's obviously it's a big imprint of is losing twins. And, and losing our twin boy, like what that felt like, that was the moment of when I held them in my, they were, we lost them around just under 20 weeks. I held them in my hands. It was the same moment where I became a father. I like literally like, wow, I, like, I could feel this jolt, bolt of energy. Like I became a father in that moment. And I was the most helpless person. Like uh, as a physician, as a father, like all of that, like it came in one moment and, and, and I didn't even know, like, so when I f first, I remember articulating this in a, like I had to give a talk, this is sort of like starting to give these talks on round burnout. This was about you know, seven years ago, about 70. I remember like, wow. Uh, when somebody came, it's like, you know, uh, that was like we, we've never heard that anyone say that so openly thank you for sharing that uh with us I, i've had a different you know i had my experience now it wasn't they had their experience and that was powerful i was like wow i didn't even know i could do that and and feel con connected to somebody who's a total stranger i don't even know who that person is now today except in that moment i was connected to that person so and that's one of the privileges i think of this work it just so speaks to um what may have been lost over the mm -hmm. you know last 20 years with the consolidation of you know medical providers into HMOs and medical practices which is there is a bottom line for all providers and so a lot of the human the humanity connection yeah. there's no money in that well kind yeah I mean I'm lucky in my job um, and this is again I, I, I count my blessings. Now I realize like, what are the factors that allow someone to feel well, right? Like, and I have my list that has come, you know, like one is obviously you have to at least have a certain amount of passion for your work. Like you, you like, this is like, oh, I really love, you know, I'm gonna talk about medicine. So I love medicine. I just love thinking about medicine. I love the science of it. Like that all fascinates me. I love learning. Second piece is you, you have, you know, I've been lucky to have great mentors. I didn't realize the value of mentorship, I'd be honest with you. Like, a, like a, you know, it's a big word that we use and particularly it's used a, like quite loosely in academics, like mentor, who's your mentor, this mentor. But for me, it was like, wow, but like my boss who is still my, you know, I, um, although I have five bosses now, but the boss that I really consider is my boss. You know, I've had a standing meeting with them every Friday from 1 to 1.30. Like, that was the thing which I, quote, unquote, negotiated in my job offer. Like, I, I want this meeting. I want to have a regular meeting. But that space 
like how important that has been for my own sense of well-being is beyond words. I mean, I am eternally grateful for that space. Like, and he has been an amazing, like just space. I mean, he's created this amazing environment and I could have never imagined that, you know, Dr. Benson is, he's an amazing individual and he's sort of like this, the trailblazer. He is sort of the, the name and the fame. He's been phenomenal. Like that is, I mean, to the point that finally in the pandemic, because I always met with him in person, but in the pandemic, now we've had these virtual meetings. So when my parents came, last time they came here to Boston. To- they actually never met him because, you know, for my, like, how would they? Uh, I mean, I, I was at work and I would only, but it was the first time they actually got to meet him because I've always talked about him for the last, I guess, what I've been on the job for 15 years now. And, um, and it was so powerful. Like my mom was like moved to tears that even in front of my father and my father was also like, he was so happy to find me. Like my mom told him that you've been like a second father for him over these years, which is how many people can say that? Very few. Not many. And that's, and so that's a second, I think that's an important factor. I think the third is like, you want to be around people who you're constantly feeling like you're learning from. I think Shayla, this goes back from our days into like, I always was around the, you know, you always feel like you're around smarter people. And it, for me, it was comf- I was comfortable. I, I was, I guess, I, I don't know. I never felt insecure uh, in that environment. Some people really did, as you know, well, at IMSA, like we were like, you know, there were a lot of smart people, but it was like, wow, I'll always be around smarter people. And that actually kept me humble. There'll always be smarter people. And I will, that means I'll always have to need to learn how to learn from them. People who are insecure about that are probably people who were so used to being the smartest person in the room that they couldn't stand. Like that was part of their identity, right? They lost their, like when you're talking about loss, we talk about loss of freedom, choice, autonomy, identity. And they lost that identity of being the smartest person around. As much as it was at IMSA, being here in Boston, that's like, it's like take it's like that, a hundredfold, right? Like it's like the smartest, like the 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 expert of the expert in this domain is right over here around the corner. Uh, the this person was there. I remember when I first came to Boston, I was walking down the street. I was doing, I did my master's of public health, and just down the street walks Paul Farmer. He's like, oh yeah, that's Paul Farmer. I mean, it's like you take for granted, like oh that's that. I, I remember another time I walked down the street, and uh, it was. Uh, Governor, you know, Michael Dukakis, he, he, he normally walks from his home to, he, he was a professor, I think, at that time at Northeastern, one of the universities. He just walks, right? You know, like, it's just like, it's so weird. And so it's like surreal. Sounds like Boston is to experts as LA is just like movie right. stars. Celebrities, yeah. <laughs> so. I think there was somebody, uh, I think it was Sarah Jessica Parker, one of the reasons that she said that she stays in New York instead of going to LA is actually because she's like, you're never the most important person in the room. There's always someone who like makes more money, is more influential, has done more deals, you know, broken more hearts than you have. Um, and it, it keeps her humble. Like it's, it's part of that. It's good for, it's good for the soul, I think. Yeah, but it, it also get, gave, it's given me a platform. That's the other thing, right? So that's the other amazing part of this experience journey is that I never planned to be like, there was no part. I mean, Shayla's known me long enough to say, I never had this dreams like, oh, I want to be at Harvard one day. I want to 
Like that's my life dream. I never, I don't think I've ever expressed that <laughs> growing up. Like, I mean, I wanted to do fine, but I never had like this, like I want to be in this position of power or this position, but I'm now here. It's not that I have, I, well, I do, I guess I do have a lot, some, not I do, uh, some amount, I have a fair amount of privilege, you know, which I readily recognize now and certain amount of um, capital, I guess, academic capital, right? Uh, so what do I use it for now, right? This is now, and, and, and it's been amazing to be able to, like, wow, this guy from Harvard is gonna talk about meditation. Weird in some ways, like I never could have imagined that that would be like, that's my identity. He's the Zen guy. Oh, he's gonna give us the grand rounds presentation on why meditation is important for us. And I was like, wow, that is, I guess, what I'm doing kind of. And because I have this sort of interesting platform to stand on, which is very privileged and has this sort of uh, branding associated with it, people will say, oh, if it's done at Harvard, we gotta do it here too. Then I, it's made me realize, like, well, why not? Oh, I guess I'll take full advantage of it. Because my dream, I realized, if I think about the world today, you know, and I, I had this moment, you know, this past weekend, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh passed away, right? And so I was just thinking, wow, that individual's influence on the world is so profound. And I thought to myself, like, wow, if I can teach or encourage some of these Harvard Medical School students, medical school students, they're going to be going off to do big things. And if the one thing that they remember when I is like, yeah, you know what, just, but every now and then just stop and pause and make sure you just check in with your own self or have a moment of gratitude or appreciation or whatever it is, like these skills that we know are so important for our well being. I feel like, wow, I'm, I'm the luckiest man alive because I would have impacted somebody that even he, that individual will even know me you know, they'll have forgotten, they'll go on to, and I live an amazing life, but at least I had that little imprint. I want to be the person who, when they go on in their lives, they're like, that Kosha, she made me remember this. But what you're saying is you don't, you don't need the, the accolades for it. No, it, 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 yeah, because at the end of the day, um, the world is going to shift. Right. If I, I, I genuinely feel that if if we taught in our like kids, I, is, you know, you know, well, I mean, Shayla has, has older kids, but, you know, Kosha, your, your daughter, my, we're the, they're the same age. And I'm just thinking, like, if all of our kids at, at that young age just learned how to express gratitude and that became a, a lifelong practice, how different would this world be like that? is what I, like, that is my, like, that is what I dream about. You're saying like, we should just take a moment to check in with ourselves and express gratitude and take a deep breath. And yeah. you're absolutely right. Like, we all know that stuff and it's all so simple, right? And I feel like everyone's attitude is generally, yeah, yeah, I'll do that in a minute. Like, I'll do that later. Right. I'm really busy right now. But even in, and because even in those, the tough moments, you know, so I can tell you my shift, uh, with my loss of my sons was when I began to experience gratitude for what they gave me in my life, which is they actually, the gift they gave me was I became a father. And that was the gift. Like that was their gift to me. Like I know now it doesn't take away the heartbreak, but that was the, that once I began to see that uh, and feel it and really believe it, you know, like it was embodied, it was an embodied phenomenon. All of a sudden, 
like as if a weight lifted, right? Like, wow, I actually, they gave me something that I would have never have gotten without them. There was also, like you said, it doesn't take away the heartbreak. And I don't know if this is, if this is too personal, please tell me. I opened it. So you <laughs> That's true, true, no take backs. So I, I went through infertility. Right. So we went through probably about a year and a half of infertility, uh, two miscarriages earlier than than your boys. But I am in, I'm, you know, what I'm incredibly open about talking about it. I, I don't think we talk about it enough. I don't think we talk about loss enough, you know, miscarriage and, and stillbirth and you know, all of that stuff. But and I understand now, you know, I have a daughter and I I now can see that what I have gained from those experiences. But like you said, it doesn't take away the heartbreak and the anger. So mm -hmm. while your boys gave you that gift, right? The universe took it away. Like, sure. where does anger fit into? That's a great, yeah. Well that's, the, well, that's the human, again, I, I still, to the, I, there's probably doesn't a day doesn't go by when I don't think about them, right? It's like there's a day, every day I think about them. I'm not saying like I think about them for hours on end, but right. a moment passes every day, right? Where I think about I, I think it's okay to be angry. I think that's a normal human re reaction, I mean, emotion, that's fine. And I think that's okay. But I think at some point you, you it, for me, it becomes a shift in choice. Like, what am I going to choose to be now? You know, what is the emotion I choose to have? If I'm making the choice of anger, then you're in control of it, right? You actually own it. You have to own it. Then say, I own this feeling. Uh, I think where emotions like anger, even sadness become hard. And again, I think about healthcare workers in this context too, because if they're feeling angry is when it is a reaction. It is not by choice. It is, it is like, it becomes, it's a second sort of, um, it, it, just, it just comes, they have no control over it. So if you have controlled anger, that means you're actually, that's, that to me is you're driven by passion. You want to make change. There's injustice. You're going to do something about it, right? That's a different feeling than, than you feel like you've been, you're a victim in the system uh, or, or, or whatever it might, you know? And I think that it's not to say that uh, it doesn't take away from the, how, what was taken away from you or what, what, unfairness or injustices that you may have experienced but I think the way is how do you actually keep that you can say that I actually am going to take control of this in the way that I best know how and that's that's hard that's the practice I'm not saying it it's not easy it's not easy I mean I'm not, I don't do I don't I have my good and bad days too yeah I mean that is the I think the operative word there is control right if you are if whatever you're it's because that implies choice um right and and in the sense of power, whether it's yeah. only power over how you respond to something as opposed to you know getting stuck in a spiral of just thinking about how bad things are or how stressed you are, how miserable everything is. It's sort of like when sadness becomes despair or anger becomes rage, right? That's those are different. Um, and they th those are when our emotions control us as opposed to the other way around yeah absolutely and i mean and again this goes with any any context i think it, it, it's how we choose to remember you know if i chose to remember 
you know, uh, you know, having gone through a divorce, you know, if I choose to remember that, oh, this is all bad, boy, I'm gonna be miserable for a long time. But I also know that, yeah, there were, we had, the, and we also had all these amazing moments and I can still keep, you can hold on to all the positives. You can, it, I think our life, you know, it's a, uh, John Kabat-Zinn's famous sort of expressions, this full catastrophe living, right? So it's, it's the full catastrophe, right? We live the full catastrophe. And, and I think I didn't really understand it until I had my own full catastrophe living. And I'm still okay. I feel well, right? And, and how do I feel well? Again, that doesn't mean like every day, like hunky-dory and, you know, this is sort of Pollyanna type of thing. It's, it's real. Uh, but but it's you know I I feel at peace. That's awesome, um, because that kind of emotional work is hard. It's very hard. It is hard. Yeah, yeah. I think that you know going back to the sort of like we've been taught that our personal life stops the second we walk into the work door, right? Yeah. Now that we're all home, it's definitely like cats are walking behind people and children are coming in, right? We've seen all of the videos where like someone's kid comes in and dance and they get up and they're like wearing a tie and shorts or whatever. But I think, you know, one thing that that's us in our daily lives and, and, um, you know, sometimes we're better at than others. But I think one thing that's really important as we think about the personal and the professional is how medical students are trained. Right. So our sisters are, sister our cousin is an oncologist our brother is uh, a hospitalist you know we've got doctors and doctors right and that is that that school of thinking about how to practice medicine which is to be a neutral um not even neutral party but sort of like uh separated party separate right like a completely unemotional party and only like operating completely rationally how are you so you do have some role over helping students learn how to be professional how are you incorporating that into not just sort of this big picture stuff but like it's okay to bring the personal into your life and how do you use that to connect with patients yeah it's well i don't we haven't figured out how do we use it how to teach students how to use that to connect with patients we haven't the only way I can do it is by role modeling. Like Model, here, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, but that's that's a that's one part, but there is a way, I think over time, just as we never thought how, like, uh, I, I'm willing to bet that, that, that your dad probably never had a course on how to interview a patient in medical school. Like it was just yeah. like, right? I mean, that's just like, but somehow along the way we learned that actually that's a teachable skill. It needs to be taught by trained faculty and they have to actually be assessed on it, right? So I actually am responsible for grades, right? Like I actually have to give a grade to, like they have to pass this course that I'm a director, so in order to move <laughs> on, um, right? So, so I think, I don't know how we'll get to the point where we can show, um, model, like what does it mean to model vulnerability ultimately, right? That's the mm-hmm. thing until, but I've started practicing it, right? Sometimes it's, it's good and sometimes it doesn't work, you know, and, and you sort of learn a little bit, uh, you know, along the way. I, I think I think a couple of things though. Um, one is that medical training, I mean, we created this fallacy uh, that 
somehow we're not supposed to be human in order to work with humans, right? So we have to sort of become very objective is what they say, right? You have to be objective. Right, I think that's exactly what I was getting at, which is like, uh, you have to be like an, you have to be completely impartial. But we're not, but human be that's, a, that's a fundamentally impossible concept. Human beings are never impartial. We carry all of our biases, we carry all of our experiences into the room. And we know that we actually, we, you know, anyone who's done any sort of work with the implicit association test and they've done it on physics, like they know that we carry by, we make different decisions on different people with the same condition all the time. Even the way we even treat our own family members, we probably, we treat, it's not like we treat the family members the same way, you know, we, everyone's treated differently. So it's well, no I know. So I, I'm in, I'm in medical sales and I have said, and I have heard, I'm in psychiatry, right? Mental health. So I have mm -hmm. heard people say something like, well, if this was my mom or my sister, this is the medication I would put them on. Right. But if you think about it, I'm like, you should be treating everybody like that's your mom or your sister because you exactly. want everybody as if you're going to be objective, then you'd want like, oh, everyone should get that top level service. But the fact that we say that is yeah. it's implicit, like it's implying that we mm -hmm. have a different set of standards for our mom and our sister, right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, no, you're absolutely. So I think it, it, you know, I, I I think we are learning now that what does it mean to have a sense of shared humanity and humanity, and in that, you know, like uh, I mean, I got a you know about four years ago, I get a call from the dean. Uh, of students at Harvard Medical School, you know, and then it's like it, it's like it just came out of nowhere, right? You get a call, like, okay, and he's like, yeah, so we want to develop. Uh, we need to have a well-being curriculum for our students. Uh, can you do it? Uh, and you have about, you know, I think I had like, you know, you have about a couple of months to plan for it. We may not be able to fund you, but we need you to do it. Uh, I was like. Okay, sure. <laughs> I guess I'll do it. Um, and that was the that was that was the start. But but the fu the funny thing is like they it's became part of this all of a sudden. Uh, and I'm actually teaching what uh, you know this curriculum has taken now many shapes and forms because as we shifted from in person to virtual to quasi in person quasi virtual, you know it's all this sort of um, that there is this sort of like we have to have this as a part of the medical student experience. They have to have skillful practice in learning about well-being. Now, what does that even mean? I mean, I have no clue what that means. Their own well-being or the total well-being of their patient? No, it has nothing to do with patients, but their own well-being. All their I'm, own well-being. I have, I have, I originally had 10, I have roughly about eight hours in their curriculum for them to explore their own well-being. Huh. I can't, I can't ever imagine my dad having done anything like that. So that means I'm going to teach them. I'm going to, we're going to go through practices. Like I have taught like in front of 175 students meditation. And then we'll talk about, okay, what does it mean for you to be, what does healthy nutrition mean for you? Right, right. How, how are you thinking about your own sleep? Uh, if you need help, how do you even know how to ask for help? Uh, if you want to think about gratitude, have you practiced appreciating someone or expressing gratitude towards somebody? I mean, this that's is what we do. This, this is like, it's not just for physicians. So this is like things that everyone needs to be thinking about, right? We should be teaching yeah. this stuff in high school. 
Oh yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Well, also, like I heard someone, I heard someone call something like this, like Sesame Street ethics, right? Like we all need to go back to the things that, you know, five, six-year-old is learning about like, this is how you're kind to yourself. And this is how, you know, <laughs> you, you know, like you treat yourself like stuff like that. Yeah. So I think, I, I think there's a, there's a huge shift uh, in the thinking. Like you could feel like, I, I mean, again, I have to just have to step back and think when I went to medical school, I went to UT Southwestern Medical School in Dallas, you know, known Parkland Memorial Hospital, the county hospital that, you know, delivered the most babies in the country. As a medical student, I delivered 30 babies on my own. You know, like, it was like, like, that's how nutty it was. It was you were not supposed to be doing that. <laughs> we delivered in the hallway. You just, just you do what you were told. And it was, and it was, there was a pride of how, um, not to say it was malignant, but you know, you, you had to be like put in this pressure cooker to succeed. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not to say that you shouldn't have pressure. I think it is important to feel stressed in a way that pushes the boundary a little. You're always pushed to challenge, and I think that's healthy. But you're also allowed to decompress too. So it has to be both. Like you can't put someone in a pressure cooker situation and then not give them space to decompress afterwards. Uh, and that's the, that's the big change that is happening. And I mean, even when I'm on the ward, when I'm on the wards, atten like uh, attending on the wards, like when I'm with a group of residents and students, like one of the skillful, like the reason I asked them, like, I'm not a normally a hospitalist type of person, but why are you keeping me, like, why do you still want me to be attending? I'm like, I'm probably one of the dumbest hospitalists. I mean, the <laughs> residents are way smarter than me. That's, you know, but they're like, no, we need it because you at least will teach them a skill mm -hmm. and you have a captive audience when you're in the inpatient side and That's they true. will at least have this exposure to the skill uh, that only very few faculty have and you have it. So we want our residents to have this broad range of experiences. So at least that way we're keeping you in the frame. Captive audience is essentially, you're not allowed to leave here unless you're grateful for something. <laughs> That could be what it was, but it's just an interesting, I think it's a, it's the, that's the, it's a shift. And I think we're, um, and I think the younger generation, you know, now I guess I'm older, you know, they're pushing it. It's like, just as they pushed it, like, I mean, I'm just thinking like pronouns, right? You asked me to say pronouns. Like, I mean, just that concept is only a couple years old. I don't think, I mean, it's not like this is like, this has been going on for a decade, right? It's only like two, three, and all of a sudden it's like normalized. Now who normalized it? It didn't come from older people. It definitely came from, I mean, I think, yeah. I mean, Jill, she's child for me. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And, uh, and so that's an example. And I still get it wrong. Or like anti-racism, like what does anti-racist education mean? Like right. even that whole, those words, they were not even part of a vocabulary, right? So it's, but it's now true. very much. So that's all these, it's shifting. It's anyway, it's a fun time. I'm thinking about say, you know, when our father was a resident in the seventies, he was doing these long shifts and back-to-back -back hours, right? And he'd be sleeping in the hospital. Uh, but our dad likes to brag that he can sleep anywhere as long as he's got three points of contact, one for his feet, one for his butt, one for his head, right? Because you yeah, just yeah, gotta yeah. get your sleep when you can, because you're working 20 hour shifts or whatever. And you're just right that, you know, sort of incoming, the incoming wave is like, yeah. oh, we cannot do that. That's not healthy. It actually causes errors. Like we got to change this. Um, and so now they don't, and I don't know when that actually changed, right? But 
rest in sour days don't work like that. They don't, but but I guarantee you, as much as the older generation says, well, in our days, we spent, you know, four days straight in the hospital or blah, blah, blah. So much of like, it's like a badge of courage, right? No, no, but, but, but it's what I will always argue that the residents and the student, I mean, the ex- medical student experience and residency experience is way harder today than it was in their age. Really? Talk about that. That's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and there are three reasons I'll tell you right off the bat. Yeah, one is like, I am talking about it. That's why I brought it up. Okay. <laughs> they, no, one reason is because we have, we have, they didn't have to know it. They didn't have as much medical knowledge. Medicine is advancing. The field of genetics, let's just use je- genetics. Like, that didn't, those, the genetics didn't even exist in your dad's generation of training, like what that means. And like today we have to know about this and this, the number of medications that we need to know today. Oh my gosh. Yes. Quadrupled, quadrupled, or maybe, maybe 10 times more, hundred times. I don't even know what, but it's way more number of medicines that we need to know today than we did there. The complexity of the healthcare system, way more complex uh, than today than it was it idea of like having like having to fill out paperwork and to get things done or whatever clicks yeah. uh, you know you have yeah. to get author like they didn't have to like they just said do this and it was done and then the last thing is like the worry about being being sued right uh, that worry is much greater today uh, there's actually one more the cost of education like in your dad's like there was no cost to medical education uh, and, and we forget like how much of a strain that puts like, oh, yeah. cause in their day, they came like, it was, it was a profitable, uh, profession to go into you made, you, you made a lot of money today, you know, when the average medical student comes out of de- with, you know, say 200 to $250,000 in debt, like that's just mind boggling, right? That's not even a concept that they even, they can't even conceive of. So I, I, I think it's actually way harder, way, way harder today than they had they had it way easier. They might actually have, and, and they actually slept on call. That's the other thing. Like, they, like there's no concept of sleeping. Like they actually slept. And, and then this whole, now when we enter COVID, oh, yeah. they will never have had the experience of having gone through a pandemic where you're scared for your life in the beginning. Like I'm going to the hospital and I don't- And wearing know. like garbage bags for PPE, right? Like- I, I mean, I wore, I, I, I was deployed to a floating hospital for, that was a COVID recovery hospital. And like, yeah, we wore paint suits, like those painter suits, like I was like fully like paint wow. suits. And it was like, a, yeah, and it was, you know, it was like weird, like, wow, okay. Yeah. So I, like I said, I work in medical sales and I used to work um, I, on the diabetes side and I, and try, our little brother was, he came out of medical school and he had just done his endocrinology. And I was like, oh, what did, you know, and I'm not looking for a sale. I'm not, I'm just like interested. What, you know, what meds are you guys learning about and stuff? And the medication that I was promoting was not even brought up. And it was like the second or third, there are two or three of them in the market. It was, I had Victoza, so Liraglutide. Okay. He did not, he was not taught about GLP-1. Like neither was I. Yeah, yeah, but he came out of school like 10 years after you or whatever. It's like I cannot believe how I knew more, right? Like in terms of the medications that are out there. And then you go back another 40 years, and I I see what you're saying, where it's like medical schools can't even keep up with how fast some of these medications are coming out. I mean, that's just medications, right? 
now it's not just medications. Then we have procedures. Then you have like, like the work that, again, I'm just going to, since you brought up your dad, I just said, because I know, I know your dad, I know some of the work, some of the things that he did as a urologist, other professions are now doing. Like some of the things he probably did as a urologist, like a radiologist, an interventional radiologist, probably doing half of the things that he did. Or, you know, like I remember when I was a resident, the only time you could get a, an ultrasound, like to help learn how to do certain procedures is you had to get it from the bladder ultrasound from the urology. And they hated it when the internist took the bladder out. But now it's standard of practice that you have an internal medicine should know how to do an ultrasound, which I never learned how to use an ultrasound, but they need to learn how to use an ultrasound so they can do procedures. Or if they want to even do a bladder scan, which is what the urology, we'd have to consult the urologist to, Hey, can you do a bladder scan? So you can see how much urine is left in that person's bladder and if they're retaining or whatever. So like, like we couldn't do it on our own, but now we do. So it's like, there's a lot, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an exciting time in medicine, but um, I, I, I do, I always will believe that it's harder today as much as they said, oh, back in our day, we did this, and this but it's not. Just to clear our dad's name. I don't hear him saying it was better. <laughs> back. No, no, I'm not saying. But there is a, it, he hasn't said it's better, but that, that generation has yeah said things like um the residents don't have to do xyz it's almost like they're too soft this is how we got good that that's it not necessarily with dad dad not with you but yeah okay <laughs> don't worry uncle i'm not i'm not trash <laughs> right no. uh you better call him uncle or dr baxi now no 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 he's like, he'll always be uncle there is i agree a sense of like there's a softening of the residents because they, feel, they haven't had to deal with this. Yes. Yeah. They feel that way, that they're soft, but it turns out they're, it's way yeah. harder. And That's very interesting. I, I, it's way harder. It's way more complex. And it's definitely not as profitable. I mean, we know that, you know, going into medicine, the training, the length of training time increased, the amount of debt increased. In my line, going back to sort of look, like we actually, um, you know, there have been amazing studies. Like we actually do an amazing job picking the most resilient human beings to enter the field of medicine in the United States. So they've compared like age, like uh, college level graduates that go into medicine versus they go into other professions. And uh, as a group, they're on different sort of psychometric analysis. They, they are actually more resilient they're, they're clearly more resilient. We actually picked the, the cream of the crop to go into the, in that sense, to go into medicine as a Q, Q group. That's because the process of getting into medical school is so painful. No, no, but I'm just saying even their own sense of emotional well-being, like, you know, they've done like physical well-being, like all these sense of like, they've actually like as a batch, they're pretty good. But by the time they enter um, residency and finish residency, it's a 180. Huh. It's like totally 180. That happens. Wow. Oh. What does that tell you? So you're saying people who started at the top are now at the bottom of resilience. In, in factors around well-being. Wow. Oh, wow. As a group. As a group. Yeah, yeah. So that's why there's this, that's why there's this whole focus. That, you buried the headline on that one. <laughs> that, I'm like my jaws on the ground. Wow. That's why there's all this focus. Now yeah, why is it that's happening? And why is it happening in our train? Like what are we doing in our training? That is we literally transforming the best of the best, not into the worst, but they don't stay at the best. 
anymore. As it relates to their own sense of self, they end up uh, as a group, not as well off compared to those same peers that they were compared against, you know, seven years earlier or whatever. Have they looked at individual factors of well-being, like insecurity, uh, sleep, mental stability, that kind of thing? I mean, they look at the same factors, like what is their sort of sense of perceived well-being in terms of social connectedness, Mm -hmm. relationships. Obviously there is also, um, you know, you know, their gendered characteristics to, you know, women fare much worse on average than men do in this factor, uh, which is still a part of it has to do with sort of the, uh, obviously there's huge amounts of disparities in treatment uh, in the education process and also subsequently even disparities in pay and, you know, compensation as well, which is well known. And they still, as is also true across all, you know, have to always, uh, as a group, have to always make the decision around caregiving responsibilities and, and, and how they, they obviously have a higher percentage that end up being the primary caregiver. Yeah. You know? And so those are, there are lots of factors. I don't think it points to one, but I think there are a whole bunch that can list. Well, we talked to someone just a couple of days ago who's a nurse, a male nurse. And one of the things we learned from him is, you know, it works to his advantage sometimes, but even we, you know, so we talked about like the perception of him, like versus his female peers. And we heard two things, right? Doctors don't tend to disparage him when talking to him, whereas sometimes they will be very dismissive of his female peers. And secondly, and it's not surprising, um, but he does not experience on the job sexism not just disparaging, but physical sexism and assault the way that female peers would. And I'm imagining that for female residents, that's also part of the mix, which is like, you're also having to prove yourself a lot more. And then people are hitting on you, patients, oh, or yeah, yeah, yeah. doctors or whatever that is, right? And you, there is a bit of like, absolutely. at a certain point, you just get worn down. I'm sure, yeah. And I and I, I mean, obviously, I don't, I wouldn't know that direct experience being a guy, but, but, but certainly, I mean, at the very basic level, I, many, you know, I have a good friend, she's, she'll say that, yeah, I have to always make sure that I say I'm Dr. So-and-so, not, and not by my first name, like I, even to the, whoever the uh, staff is, because otherwise, um, you know, like, the, like she has to introduce herself as Dr. Mm-hmm. So-and-so, right? So I think, which makes sense because it's it's such a net like oh you're not the doctor like a- well and there's also a sense of like stereotype threat which we've talked about a couple of times on on the podcast is you know if someone has a stereotype about you for example in this case women are not as competent as doctors or they're more likely to be nurses or you know they're they're not experts then as a woman you also feel like oh my god if I screw up I am confirming that stereotype. So stereotype threat is also pressure that those with the stereotype put on themselves. And interestingly, you know, I was just going to say, because you are friends with Greg Tinkler, you guys, all of you guys go mm-hmm. back this season mm-hmm. and, and Jason, Jason, Jason. This is a, last season, <laughs> season two, it was all like, oh, this is Kosha's friends from high school. And now it's all like, Shalji's friends are coming on this season, but uh, so <laughs> happy to have you, uh, but yeah. But Greg was talking about when he now talks to his students, 
he's like you know before yeah. i used to just call me dr greg or greg or whatever you know like yeah. but yeah. women and people of color tend to get called by their first name and or like disparaged or you know just with those stereotypes mm -hmm. and things like that mm -hmm. so he insists that people get used to using dr such and such for all of the professors because yeah yeah women you know, women have worked that as hard as men to get to oh that, absolutely you know that degree and i think just i can't imagine you know having worked for years to become a doctor and then people just assuming that you're an ma or went to you know like you all of this is me saying now by listening to stories of my friends and colleagues so i can't it's all from that presented but i mean even just the if you have to go through this many years of training then even just thinking about things like your childbearing age you know and when you think about that the window there's a physiologic biologic window that is tighter right and that's another pressure so i think there's a lot of um uh um you know i think a lot of forces and i would i would just Kosha, one thing you said, they have, women have to work harder. It's not that they work just as hard. They actually have to work harder. I meant like in terms of years, but you're right. They have, but even in the amount of, just because of, of these other forces that are again. That's a but very good point. Again, going back to, you know, I think about like, you know, how this, like it's posed an interesting, um, for me, like, as I think about just my own career trajectory and, and sort of like, you know, what, you know, well-being, like, what does well-being ultimate mean? Like, what do I think about resilience and all these, like, these are big words now that have, like, become part of our vocabulary and even in medicine. Uh, and I'm not sure yet. I don't have the answer, but it is like, wow, we actually are using this a lot, like, every day. Like, today I had a whole day of patience. In every conversation, we're talking about, like, these, like, these were the words that we were using. The patients were using it. I was using it. They were trying to define it. So we're in this process of defining what that means. I mean, that is one of the most challenging things about concepts like resilience or well-being, which is, you know, you can say it yeah. and you can even list a definition of what it is. But, you know, I say this a lot in my work. What does it look like? Right. Advocacy is only, a, it's a concept unless you can define it for yourself and say, that means we're going to talk to 17 legislators, right? Okay, that's, that's what it looks like. But otherwise, it's like, we're going to do legislative education means nothing, right? It's, it's just more concepts defining concepts. And I think, you know, as you alluded to this idea of like, the, the fact that we have all these concepts that we're trying to integrate both into medical practice and into medical education, and yet we don't know what they look like on either side. How would we assess the patient's overall well-being? I don't know. What does it look like? Can you, can you start to answer that question? What does well-being and resilience look like? But resilience, I think resilience is a little bit easier for me to understand only because when, again, going back to our own life stories, when you experience any sort of, and I'm gonna use not the word, let me use the word, not in a clinical sense, but just the experience of when you experience trauma, whatever trauma it is, that doesn't mean doesn't mean be big or small, but whenever you sense a sense of something is traumatic to you, how you recover from that is, is what resilience means. Like that's what it means to be resilient. How you recover and able to continue to live your best self, transformed by that trauma. 
Yeah. Right? You're transformed, but you're still able to live what you think is your best self. Well-being's harder. Well, and I want to interject and say that it's really important that you said transformed, because there's also one option, you know, sort of some people get stuck in the trauma and they never pull out. Right. Another option on the other end is you experience trauma, but you never process it. And so you just move forward. Um, and so you're, you haven't processed it. You're not transformed. You're just like, put it, I put it in a box, yeah, yeah. not going to think about it and just moving forward. But we also know that that never works. It always leaks out somewhere. So I think that word transform is really, really important in this, con in this conversation. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I didn't know, and I can say that because I've been transformed, like my whole sense of who I am has been transformed. Well-being is a little bit harder because I think there are different dimensions of well-being. Um, you know, there's obviously physical well-being, emotional well-being, intellectual. But I think ultimately, to me, it's we will only understand well-being. This kind of um, is really around the no notion of spiritual well-being because it's it's really in our interconnectedness. Again, it goes back to like what the pandemic is like. We've forced this social isolation or social distancing. And we're realizing that people are suffering because they can't be together, ultimately. Like that is the fundamental disruption. Like we never planned for this type of disruptor. Like what happens when we get forced to just be only around? The same damn people in your family. <laughs> right. No, that's, like, that's hard. Right, it is so hard, and it, and it has been this fundamental disruptor in our our lived experience. And I think that is like, and so if you don't, and, and most people don't have a sense of their own groundedness because they were so reliant upon that scaffold of the to be, and so it's, that spiritual well-being to me is the key. Like we don't talk about that anywhere. I mean, and and I, I'm not saying that, that for some people it may come in the form of where their faith. It could, but it's a sense of where your interconnectedness, like you have a deep sense of interconnectedness with other people. And, and it's, a it's a felt or lived experience. And that's, uh, that's the one that I'm still trying to figure out myself. But, but anyways, that's, that comes to, again, again, I think from my lived experience from, you know, from, you know, uh, from 25 years onward, like it's been a sort of a 25 year journey. And the profession as a whole, and even outside the profession, right? I mean, I work in public health, so that's sort of built on individual metrics, just aggregate them and now you have group metrics. As a whole, we haven't actually figured out, is there a metric or group of metrics that's meaningful and accurate to give us a sense of someone's well-being or even health, truthfully, like their overall healthiness, whatever that might mean. You know, one of the, you know, we have, there's this, perception that if someone is, you know, over their ideal weight, then they're, they need to lose weight to be healthy. But that's not always true in the sense that your food choices, your activity choices, and all of that stuff, right, all of that stuff plays into it. Well, and also the, the inverse is true, where you can be at your healthiest, your healthy ideal, or I, I'll put ideal weight, but like I, I was anorexic for some time and I abused laxatives for some time. And I was at, if you looked at me and you put me on the scale, I was at my ideal weight, but I was the least healthy I've ever been in my life. So 
it, it, that kind of metric, that lag metric is just not, is not enough. Yeah. No, you're right. So my question, my question for you, if you, it's hard to, to identify what someone's well-being, what does that mean, right? How do you define that? What does that look like to Shalushi's point? So can you do the opposite? When you're hearing from your students or your residents or patients, what does it sound like? What does it look like when they don't have a solid sense of well-being or they're, they're not being, what's the opposite of well-being? That they have sucky well-being. Disease, no, the sense of ill, you know, illness. Yeah, like what? What does that mental unwell-being? What does that? But that's that's what I no. But that's what I would just say. That's what we see every day, right? I mean, that is what people, you know, uh, that that's what we that's medicine is about treatment of disease. You know, so we don't we everything we learn in medical school is about how we we look at this diseased person and how do we treat them or how do we cure them or how do we correct them or how do we fix them? The language of cultivation of health never, I mean, it, maybe it did exist in maybe thousands of years ago when, but uh, it, it hasn't, it has, it's now we're starting to do, uh, you know, one of my um, uh, mentors, told me one time, like, you know, the difference between the word medication and meditation is just one letter. Yeah. Right. It's, it's just one letter. Right. So, 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 but we talk about medication very easily in medicine and they all have the same root, like, you know, medicine, medication, meditation, they're all the same root word. Uh, but it's, but we only talk about, you know, medicine and medication not meditation, not to say that meditation is the answer to, but the idea is meditation, like a concept of meditation represents a cultivation of health, like a cultivation. So to end, like, it is something that allows someone to experience and understand their own nature of their own suffering, you know, in one way, but it also allows someone to feel a sense of groundedness, a sound sense of interconnectedness, right? Like these are the things that we talk about, like uh, it, we, we feel inspired by it again when you hear when you're in the presence of someone like when you feel like deep like connected like you feel their presence you're moved you can you you're just you typically you're just you I, I guarantee you like tell me someone that you just went in their presence and you just felt moved they didn't even have to say a word and you felt it i'm sure you have an experience mm -hmm. of somebody you can just think oh yeah i was there and you can probably articulate exactly where you were and what you were you just literally walked into the room yeah. and you just felt it and we and so we think that those things happen by chance, but it's not. They're cultivated skills. Like you have to cultivate it. And how do you cultivate that? Is the question that I think. Well, I think you're. I, I was also going to say that you know, referencing back to what you said, medication and meditation are just one letter apart, and yet we only focus on the medication side, the physical health side, and we don't engage people thinking about either their mental health except for like, you know, go to a therapist, right? Or if it's really bad, go to a psychiatrist and get medicine. Um, or, or sort of the role that the mind plays on promoting health or on sort of suppressing health. Um, you know, one of the things I like to reference a lot, it, it, well, 
regularly is the fact that meditation um, can really help people who suffer chronic pain. Um, and that is, that has nothing to do with medicine. That has nothing to do with an, you know, anesthetic, what you're taking in your body. That is all the control that the mind has on the body. Do you see this, beca mm -hmm. that becoming also a bigger part of medical practice and medical education, which is like, you really do have to consider how people are thinking about their health and what, you know, mm -hmm. this is also, what is mm -hmm. that? There's a, I'm trying to think about the, the author I'll, I'll think about later, but uh, I'll remember it later, which is the idea that um, your trauma lives in your body. Oh, Bessel van der Kolk? Yes, the body, the body keeps, keeps the score. Yeah, it shows yeah, up in yeah. your body. I know people who regularly go to the doctor because this is hurting or they're having this physical problem or this ailment, you know, illness. And it's really, it's certainly happening in your body. They're not lying, but like the roots of it are not physical. They're actually psychosocial and emotional. And yet we keep, you know, the, the treatment is take this medicine or all that stuff. Yeah, so in my, my work, you know, I'm very uh, specific when I work with patients to tell them that we're not going to not think about what my, you know, advances in medicine have to offer. It's not like a, this or that. It's like, we can have it all. We should have it all. It's like we want, you know, if, if, a, if a medication is going to support you so you can do this other work, then by all means, let's, let's do it. And vice versa, I want you to be on the, Mo I want you to get the most benefit of this one medication with the least amount of side effects. So let's make sure we maximize this so you can have that outcome too. But I, I think, again, I, you know, we artificially created, you know, it's, they call, you know, it's the Cartesian split, right? So, you know, I think therefore I am mm -hmm. the Descartes sort of saving, right? So the, but we know that it's not just that the mind has control of the body, the body actually, actually has, you know, as you said, has direct expression of what's, it's your lived experience. You can actually tell, you know, we've, you know, one of my colleagues, one of my other bosses, eminent research, he looks at like, how does posture tell someone predict or tell something about mm -hmm. someone's depression, mm -hmm. right? That you, you can, it's actually a very strong, it, it turns out posture is probably the first thing that changes when someone's depressed. Now, Shalusha and I are both like sitting straight up with our shoulders back. <laughs> no, I'm fine. I always feel like, <laughs> Yeah, but that's the, but then you then you then you you actually have a tremendous amount of wonder, at least a curiosity about some of our wisdom traditions, like say, yoga or tai chi, where there was a tremendous yeah. focus on yeah, posture, right. because it was about a mindset that you cultivate through the through the through the postural practices, right? That there's a very popular TED talk that it's like the Wonder Woman position. Yeah, the power pose. Yeah, the power pose. Yeah, that one. And that over time, that actually changes because that energy comes from the inside out and affect, it affects your like mentality. That's what I'm saying. I think when I think about well-being, we always we think about it at the level of the individual primarily. Which is fine. That's correct. That's the unit of sort of measurement. But I've actually kind of started to think about not at just the level of in individual. That's why, like now, it's like interrelational, like or interconnectedness. That's why I was going back to like like that well-being we haven't talked like like in a society. Like we know right now that this society, like we walk outside, there, something just it 
it just generally feels unwell, right? Like right, right now, like as a society, like no one says like, oh wow, we're living like our society is well, right? Now. It's not. <laughs> and, and even right. pre-pandemic, we were feeling it. Like something, like there's something shifted. I don't know how to describe this, but it shifted. Like we just do not feel we are not well. And I don't know how to shift it back, but but hopefully we'll figure it. Fix it, Darshan. Come on. Yeah, it's a fix. You fix it. <laughs> When Thurston figures that out, he will definitely get, his mom will be pleased because he will definitely get a larger paycheck. <laughs> I was going to say, you're on as an expert. Uh, Come on. So that's the thing. Like, that's where the spiritual, like, I think my own personal spiritual journey helps me understand that. Uh, at least it, it helps me think about that. I, I don't think I've understood it, but at least I think about it a lot. You know, like, what is the world I want my daughter to have ultimately live in? It does seem like medicine and the practice of medicine, both by doctors and by residents and with patients, right? So it's sort of both sides has, um, has really downplayed, disengaged from fundamental humanity. And I feel like it's a microcosm of what is happening on this larger level, which is check your real self at the door and show up as a worker, show up as a this thing, show up as a that thing, but don't bring your emotions into it and keep yourself together. The more we enforce that pretty much in almost every you know, venue, every sphere of our life, the more we do get disengaged from that, right? And then, then you go, who am I? What do I feel about things? What do I need to feel better? If we can't even answer those questions for ourselves, then it's hard to think about how we might engage with someone else or support them in their own wellness efforts. Or people identify with one thing and then they have what we know as identity foreclosure when that thing goes away. We have seen this with, not with our dad, he actually retired with relative grace and ease, but you see a lot of doctors who are doing surgery, right, in their, when they should not be doing surgery, And they're just so, should be ready to retire, but it's such like, if I'm not a doctor, then what am I? I can't imagine that's good for your overall well-being. Yeah, well, obviously any loss of identity, that's, that's, when you lose your identity, that's the, I think that's the hardest form of loss, right? When you've lost your identity. I mean, that's, there's nothing harder than that. Yeah. In my books, like, because you've lost your own self, like that's, then you're like, you're nothing. You're literally are nothing, right? At that point. So, yeah. so I think I like to tell this story. Coach has heard me tell it before. The one year I was at this reproductive rights organization as their executive interim to be executive director, and it was not going well. This is what I had wanted my whole like. This is my. This is what I was going to be, right? This is my professional identity, and I get there and I hate it. I'm not doing well. I'm miserable. Obviously, this is spilling out everywhere. Um, and I was, when I talked to my therapist, she's like, okay, well, put that aside. What else can you do to make yourself feel better? Like, what would be fun? And I think this so illustrates that, like, your identity takes such a big part of it that it's almost like you don't know yourself. I, I was like, I don't know. I don't even know who I am anymore. Right. Which is, I'm married. I have, you know, I have children. I have friends. I have siblings. I have a daughter. All that stuff is like, I cannot do this job 
that's who I was supposed to be. And now I don't even know myself. I only did that for like eight months. So to do a job for a long time and have that be sort of like who you are, particularly in the US where it's like the first question you ask someone is like, oh, what do you do? As Shalusha said, I think in the United States, we put so much of like, well, this is who I am. And Mm -hmm. that becomes when that is ever not just lost, but if you question it, like people, the, the pressure, you know, like as we're talking about girls in medical school, like there's pressure to succeed on top of like serious, like all this stuff, you do become a pressure cooker inside and there's no release belt. Yeah, no, absolutely. It, so I think, I think you, I, I think the more we stay attached, you know, to certain, like, again, it, to me, it comes back to this idea of like how we groundedness and sense of, I, I know I was like come back to this interconnectedness sort of like with, which is the thing that we haven't talked, like we don't talk about quite yet. I, I think in part, we just don't have vocabulary to talk about it as a society, but but if we attach ourselves to like our profession or our institution, like if I'm known, oh, that's the Harvard physician. And I really like, that's my identity. As soon as if I get dropped from like, yeah, that would be devastating. If I can't work for whatever reason at this institution or if I can't be a physician anymore, like that would devastate, right? If that was how I saw myself. Um, I think I've, again, I've come, I think for me, like one of the things is I think about the way I teach, uh, the way I sort of even now live my life, especially for my, I think about my daughter and what I want her to see in me is what is the values uh, ultimately. And the value to me is again, I think for me, like how do we cultivate certain values in a rigorous way? So there's values of, I think, curiosity that is a critical one. Like, how do you stay curious? How do you stay non-judgmental? You know, uh, that's hard because in medicine, we're all about judgment. That's like, you have to make judgment all the time, right? So how do you also stay non-judgmental? How do you stay loving? That's the toughest because you bring up the word love in medicine. Oh my God, that's like, oh, like people are like, oh, no, you can't talk about that. But that's actually an important, <laughs> turns out it's a very important skill to cultivate that. It's not just you're, you just are, you actually have to constantly cultivate it. Because if you're loving that even the, the, the patient that is suffering the most and maybe a difficult encounter, you don't see that patient as a difficult patient. You see that this is gonna be a, this might be a difficult encounter, but that's still a human being on the other side of that encounter. That's tough. It's so tough. And then I think the other, the last thing is um, how do you cultivate humility? Because when you're in a profession that is all about being on the pedestal and if Mm. you fall from the pedestal, that's devastating in whatever way you might fall. Uh, And so ultimately you have to learn to cultivate humility in order to just understand your sort of your own, uh, not to say that you're less than, but you you understand your, your place in this world relative to the rest of the world uh, and you still feel secure about it. So that's a challenge, but it's one I enjoy thinking about and doing and working with. Well, that's a great segue to the next question I have for you, which is, so what, what is the way forward or what are your, I'm not to say that you have the way forward, right? But what are your thoughts about the way forward? What can we do? What can, 
what are small things that can be done and like what are institutional changes that can support those things? I think, again, this is where um, I think it's happening. I mean, it's the way forward is happening because there is a groundswell of people. I'm not, you know, I'm just one of many who are thinking about this and, and, and there are many more smarter people. That's one of the beauty, again, <laughs> like there's so many smart people thinking about it. And it's awesome to just be in this sort of uh, amongst the, this crowd, it's changing. It is going to change. I think. I think part of it is that we have seen. We are now seeing, like, in some ways, the stretches of what's happening. And I think about my, you know, many people in medicine have become disillusioned. So you have to really sort of cultivate a love and, and uh, back uh, for the profession. And I think that only comes when you have people who, that they see, genuinely love it or talk about their love, and and that happens. Um, that's a, I think a, uh, it's a felt experience. Like people uh, really know authenticity. And I think that's, that's the other piece. Like we, we, we need the, the, those types of individuals which can talk about everything. Like I, I am now comfortable talking about, you know the things that have made me happy in medicine or in life, the things that made me cry in medicine or in life, you know, and, and I think all of it and all of those emotions, like we can, we should be able to talk about that freely and feel safe to talk about it, right? It's about creating a culture of safety. What was the term that you used in the beginning? Full catastrophe? Uh, it's not my word, but yeah, John Kabat-Zinn, that's the title of his best-selling book, is Full, Full Catastrophe, catastrophe Living. Full Catastrophe Living. Right? So we, that's brilliant, yeah. Yeah, and that was his that that was his sort of magnum opus in, the, in our field. And um, it was, yeah, that's what we live. And the, the preface to that book, just going full circle, is, is by Thich Nhat Hanh. I know we have to wrap up here, but you talk so beautifully and so much about gratitude. I'd like to hear, before we get to the final two questions, I'd love to hear your take on gratitude, how you try to teach it, or at least to be in touch with it, and some examples of how you show, or you know, kind of bring gratitude into your daily life and you can't use your daughter like don't don't say I look at my daughter and I'm grateful that's that's a that's a phoned in answer <laughs> <laughs> look at my daughter. no I no no I was gonna say the way I was gonna bring my it actually um the way it's 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 paying attention to the feeling so so I will bring in my daughter in the first example which is that I didn't know how loved I was by her until she allowed me to experience that and I allowed to, I like so there's a sense of gratitude like that's actually that's I understand I get that, that that like that is a love that I can since I've experienced it here it allows me to understand well where else can I like how else can I cultivate that and share that elsewhere right so like I, when you receive something how else do you share so that to me is one place um I told you, I think it's important. I'm grateful for role models in my life. They, like they give you the possibility of what can, what might it be? The fact that my mentor has been this consistent with me gives me like, I am grateful because I understand the value of that consistency. Like that creates security. Like that is important for any upbringing. That actually, I, that actually is so important in the way I think about parenting. Like that, if there's one thing I got to be consistently, I got to have to consistently show up uh, in my, my own daughter's life, but, or in my patients, like I got to show up for my patients or I got to show up for, for my students. 
So that's the, 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 that to me is having role models. I think the third thing is, and this, this is gonna sound, I don't want this to sound masochistic, but I, I've, I've learned to feel it. I'm actually grateful for understanding the experience of loss because it's in experiencing loss that I also understand joy, right? Uh, like I understand really what it means to have joy. Uh, and even if it's in relations that I've experienced loss that, that I also had joy there too. Like I actually can be grateful and find my own sense of groundedness and peace in that. So that, and that comes with, you know, in any sort of relationship, whether it's with colleagues, whether it's loved ones, however it is like, but, but understanding having, it's not that I want loss. I want to be very careful. I'm not saying I want loss, but when I experience it, that the, for me, the way to fully experience this is to experience the gratitude so that I can understand everything that I gained in that. And then, um, and I think then the last part for me, like is, um, there's a gratitude towards like, like um, towards our own selves. Like we actually don't take enough time to appreciate, like have that sense of self. Not to say that I'm like better than someone or something, but like the, the skills, the capacities, the, whatever my sense of experience, like I'm, I'm really great, like I'm grateful for this life of mine. Even sometimes it sucks, but I still am grateful for the life. And sometimes it's so beautiful and I'm grateful for it, right? So like, it's, it's all of it. And I think that to me, that's that, you know, fully living fully. That's a practice, like it doesn't, I, I still am learning that practice, it's hard, but, but that's, a, that's my practice, um, yeah. So I think those things are the ways how I think about it. What advice would you give to yourself, uh, to a medical student, to an administrator, anyone that's sort of thinking about this constellation of issues and their application in a medical context? So I'm gonna at least narrow it that much and just say, I'm not gonna be like in a professional context, no, but I think the, the answer to me is simple. There is a simple one. It's like, don't be scared to, to go headstrong into that issue. I think about well-being like it is what I think about every day now professionally. And I'm headstrong in it. Like I have no, I, have, I shouldn't say I have no fear, but the amount of fear I have of using those words in academic ways amongst all these other smart people that are around me, I have no fear, I, you know, or very little fear. And I think that's what I would, I, I don't know, you know, I, I don't think I knew that when I began, I had to be a little bit squeamish, even talking to my own peers, even to, to a lesser degree, even my own family, like, yeah, I'm going to be doing this field. Uh, I'm not the doctor you think, I'm not going to be the doctor like you think I was going to be. I'm definitely not, <laughs> like, but but I, but this is what I'm going to do. And it's been an awesome journey. Like uh, initially, and I, as I've become much more confident, like it's like, oh yeah, I can do this. Not only I can do this, I can do this well. Do you think that you were squeamish because it has too much of like a ooga booga vibe to it? Like that it feels a little too like quote crunchy granola and not academic enough? Well, I mean, when you're in this environment, like everything's, that's sort of like how you're measured and like, what's, what are you going to do? I mean, even my own, um, 
you know, like I'll just very, you know, when we think about like academic promotion and how you become like assistant and professor and blah 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 and all this stuff, that's not a thing that is has been fundamentally important for my identity. But it's it's a game that people play have to play in order to sort of get other opportunities. And even in my own department, they're like, so I'm not the primary care doctor and I'm not the hospitalist. So I'm like in this other category which they, they had no idea. What do you do with the guy like this? Like they had no idea. Like, well, so what is it that you do? My own colleagues were asking me like, wait, so what is it that you do? <laughs> like, how is it that you're contributing oh. to the, yeah. to the totality of knowledge you know, that by which we measure how you contribute? At MGH like, too, at man's greatest hospital. So, well, I mean, that's it. That's it. So that's the thing. Like I had to choose, say, well, I am, I'm actually a part of your department. I'm actually, you know, I am the other person, but, but you can see what value I bring now. And pioneers always have that challenge. Pione you know, people going out into the world, there's always that challenge of like, why are you doing that? I don't understand this. Wait, is it, <laughs> wait, you're not a psychologist. You're not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychiatrist either. Yeah, I think every time of it, yeah. What is this, right? <laughs> and so, what is why are we yeah. talking about <laughs> yoga? Yeah, yeah. The same way that, you know, and you brought it up earlier, the same way that five years ago, if someone had introduced themselves by saying, I'm Shaylee Shirichi, my pronouns are she, her, people would be like, what? <laughs> why are you saying I that? I know that. I yeah. see who you, I could see who you are. That's what I was going to use, but now, you know, we've sort of made the shift to be like, you can't assume that that's part of our mental model of how we engage with people. And I think what you're doing is pioneering a new mental model for medicine um, and how medical, how, how students and how practitioners and, and patients can relate to each other. Yeah, I mean, I'm doing, yeah, I, I, I don't know if I, I don't, I mean, you, you're making like, like I'm doing, I, I'm doing what I think is, what needs to be done in my own small way. I don't know what, we'll see. It, it, it'll see what the, what, what impact it will have, but I feel firmly in what I do. Has Darshan always- I'm gonna interrupt and say, I get, yes, always. Okay. <laughs> I, can, I, can, I can see that you're like, well, I'm not an expert. These people are experts, but you're doing something that almost no one in the country is doing, which makes you a pioneer in a way that, other people like you can have all the academic knowledge but to take that and to figure out a way to insert it meaningfully into practice is something that doesn't happen very often so yes kosha Dershin has always been modest also like you earlier and i'm not trying to blow smoke i'm not trying to make you blush or anything but you said something <laughs> about like have you ever just felt connected to somebody and just like felt their energy <laughs> right the last two hours I have felt that so I could go on for another I just listen to you talk for another three hours um there is a there is a <laughs> joke there's a joke that's not really a joke um but you know Probably how true. like all she knows what I'm gonna say that all like half of all jokes are truth or whatever you know yeah 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 I do this thing where Shalushi introduces me to her friends and then I poach that, I take them. I don't take them away, yeah, but I then I like insert myself. Greg and I are really, really tight because Shalushi was like, oh, come out to dinner with us. Um, when you were here, Shalushi initially was like, maybe you should come out to dinner with Darshan. And I think she's like, 
no, you're not going out to dinner with us. <laughs> but there's several friends. So I actually had texted her and I was like, I want to be friends with Darshan. And she, she's like, of course you do. That's because I've laid the groundwork for 30 years. I was like, yeah, thanks for vetting. <laughs> yeah, I'm just putting it out there yeah. that like, I want to be your friend. So you are, you may not be like on the marquees right now yet, but I definitely can tell that you are one of the most like progressive thinkers about this like mindfulness in medicine. It's very obvious. And the <laughs> fact that you're trying to practice it yourself. Yeah, well, that's, yeah, otherwise it wouldn't, yeah. If I don't know what it's like myself, then it's kind of hard to teach it. So I have to sort of even learn from my own mistakes too, right? Like, oh yeah, this doesn't work. Also people do that all the time. <laughs> I work with psychiatrists. <laughs> They do that all the damn time. <laughs> no, and you don't have to worry. Yeah, see, the thing is, uh, you know, the beauty of relationship, I think, again, I still remember, I, 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 this is one story. Shailusha, you, you, I don't know if you even know this, but you may or may not, but I remember the first day I met Shailusha, like really met her. Like, I, I don't know, like we had this sort of group of friends, but. I was one day old, how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> My first real memory was I came back from, I would go home every weekend, uh, you know, and then come back. Um, and I came back, I was, you know, in the, in, in our common, the, we had the common area and Chaley, she was there and came and I came in with my parents and literally without any hesitation came up and gave me this big hug. Like it was like came out and I was like, like, hey, how are you? Like, so good to see you. And it was the most authentic feeling of love in that moment. And I was 14 years old. Okay. I'm just like, I didn't even know what that felt like mm -hmm. until I had that experience. Right. I was like, wow. And here we are 30 years later. And I can tell you that even just when we just had dinner, like, it's that same feeling. Like when I'm in, the, like, I, like, I remember that moment when she came up and, and so that's, so when you have that, like, wow, that's life. Like you, you feel like you feel so secure about what you're doing. Like when you have some of those relationships in life that are like, you feel truly loved. You can do anything. Like, I feel like I can, I can conquer the world. That's what it is ultimately. I mean, one of the things, not one of the things, but research shows that kids who are being bullied or LGBTQ youth or kids on the spectrum or whatever, if they feel loved at home, loved and accepted at home, they can, they have resilience to go out into the world. Not that it's easy, but that they don't feel despair and hopeless that they come back to a place of feeling accepted and loved for the whole spectrum of who they are. Whereas kids who don't feel that suffer so much worse outcomes. Um, and I, you know, that carries through our whole lives. Like if we feel loved and accepted and that we have, you know, a group of people who are like, I'm going to catch you when things are tough, uh, that it's, we can move fearlessly through the world in a way that I think if we felt like we were all alone, we couldn't Absolutely. at all. Yeah. The grad, the sense of gratefulness, I mean, I would say you, uh, is that I have for this relationship and this friendship that I'm just saying, Kosha, you're saying like, you're, you're automatically a part of it. You're a sister. So you already have by extension of that. I start calling you bye now. 
<laughs> Seriously. That is, it, yeah. Also, I think that I need to like denounce my title as podcast podcast host, and you should just do it with Darshan. She'll see. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. You guys are visionary. No, I love this. You guys are doing something Thank big you. here. Thank you. And I'm glad to be a part and, of it. And uh, we're happy to have you on. And interestingly, you know, it's part of the reason that we even started doing this is because we know that connection, getting to know someone who they really are, getting to, to hear someone's story transcends any kind of the isms, right? Even neo-Nazis who, or, you know, KKK members who have really sat down and gotten to know a person of color have, have formed friendships and left those organizations and changed mindsets. And so that's really what I am speaking with Shail Shinkosha is all about is hearing those stories that don't get heard and being able to transcend some of those isms that are toxic, right? that was awesome um okay last question it we always end on kind of an upbeat note um yeah, yeah some of these podcasts can the episodes can get heavy so not this one but um we talk about familect and it really started in the first season when we were talking to first generation americans because there's there's humor in like these words that have now infiltrated our our everyday vernacular give us some examples in your world Wow. Oh man, this is hard. I am trying to think. Um, oh my God, this is tough. I know I'm drinking about that. That's exactly, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm actually trying to think like, what is that type of uh, word that. So, one of the things, well, it's not a, is, it's not a, a, no, no, because we have a series of um, um, uh, like a, a nightly ritual of doing prayer. And, um, and so in the prayers, like one of the things that only Ash, like, that's only a thing that she would, she starts cracking up because the word darshan comes up <laughs> and uh, in a bunch of different ways. And so she will start laughing every time. So every night now we have this whole thing because there's a whole, like one of the stanzas, the word like darshan comes up like six times in the actual stuff. <laughs> and so, the, so it's like this word, it's like the idea of like, and it's interesting because she will look at me every time and just start cracking up. Now, no one will know why she's cracking, but she just looks at it just because it has to do with me. And then she counts it. And then she has now counted because in the, the word Asha comes up only two times. Oh, so she's mad. And Asha, yeah, uh, in, in, in the <laughs> set of prayers, which I didn't even realize, but she's counted it and she's figured out how many times it comes. She's and smarter then she'll, than you. Yes. She is. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> But that's that's just a, something that that's a, something that that just it's it's a part of our prayer. So the prayer is so doing the prayer has nothing about like her. She she's in her mind is all about figuring out getting to that place in the prayer where it's getting to my name. I'm I'm doing this so I can laugh. Yeah. If someone if someone walked, what does darshan mean? Darshan literally means to see. Right. Okay. So in the truth of it, she's actually looking at me. The irony is that she is looking <laughs> oh, at see, me. So you're like, Aha, she doesn't know yet yeah. the meaning, but it, Aha, when you're it, when you're 20, yeah. you'll not think this is funny. But like, if someone walked in while you were praying and she's cracking up, yeah, they would be like, she cracks up every time. Uh, that's not an appropriate response. They're like, what the heck is going? 
right like during prayer you should be you should be Summer like and, you know yeah. sitting proper and you know like have discipline and all that no this is not no the appropriate response for prayer but she's like chortling and holding her she's her laughing oh that's awesome she totally is i laughing. also like how she's like asha only comes up twice it does oh, yeah that's awesome. and she's right i want to try to be more grateful every day try i can try well, I'm grateful for this. You have been a joy.